the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions. And if you have a question as you've been studying God's word or a particular issue that you're trying to seek biblical counsel on, uh, you can call us directly. It's 843-525-1859. Or many people email us here into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. And when you call, if you'd like, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and Deb will be happy to receive it in that way. Well, Rick, uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, and uh, we'll begin with some of the questions that have already come in, and we'll start there. All right, very good. Uh, the phone's ringing, so, um, and and let me just say, when you go on the air, you don't have to give your name. Um, Some people are uncomfortable doing that. We understand that, and you can remain totally anonymous, and uh, and by the way, if during the week there's an issue that you want us to address, and you uh, can't listen at 11 o'clock on Tuesdays when we're broadcasting live here from the studio, you can go to the Search the Scriptures um, app or uh, on your computer. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you'll find us on um, both Android and at the Apple Store. And all of our messages are there. And you can uh, also uh, go to that website and click on Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. And when you go there... Uh, you can type in your question, and then when we get to it, and they come in from all kinds of different places, uh, we will email you and say, hey, your your question that you asked was uh, answered on such and such a day, um, and you can see the list of questions that day. Oh, mine's the fifth one, and just kind of scan through. You don't have to listen to the whole Bible line, but get your answer. It takes me a lot longer to type than it does to speak, and some of the questions are very involved, and so we just, uh, Rick pulls them up here at the Bible line for us, and we take them one at a time. So let's go ahead and get started. Bonnie from Bluffton writes, Leviticus 10, 1 two, and 2, and uh, 10, 8, and 9. First, we have the strange, profane fire, Nadab and Abihu, offered before the Lord, then the admonition about drinking wine or intoxicating drink when entering the tabernacle of meeting. Two questions. One, do you think the admonition of drinking wine or intoxicating drink immediately following the death of Nadab and Abihu was an explanation of God's punishment? And two, verse nine seems conditional. Don't drink wine or intoxicating drink when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die like Nadab and Abihu. It seems to assume they do prior to entering the tabernacle. What is your opinion? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and it's a passage of Scripture that just reminds us that we don't worship God any way that we want to. Let me read the passage. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire, plans, fire pans, and putting fire in them, 
placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron said, uh, is it what the Lord spoke, saying, um, by these who come near, I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored? So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called to Mishael and uh, Eliaphon, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside camp. So they came forward and they carried them still in their tunics outside the camp. And of course they buried them. And then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you may not die. In other words, you don't mourn over their death because they died at the hand of God Almighty. So, uh, you know, you're not saying, oh, they were such good people. And well, I'm sure, you know, there were some good aspects, but they did something that was really terrible. And that he may not become wrathful against all the congregation, but your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel shall bewail the burning, which the Lord has brought about. So they were the priesthood and the standards were high. And um, he says, you shall not go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses, the Lord. And if you have the new American standard, you see the word Lord is in all caps Um, there's different ways to write Lord in the English Bible. Sometimes it's capital L, small letter O-R-D, but when you see all caps, capital L-O-R-D, then that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's his most sacred name that he gave. When you see capital L, small letter O-R-D, it's the word Adonai. Um, But the covenant name is the most sacred name of God by which God identifies himself to Moses and the children of Israel. Yahweh then spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute, perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. And so to teach the sons of Israel, all the statutes, which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. So that was good for me to read it and refresh my memory on all the issues here. So the question is one, why did they die? And was the drinking conditional and so forth? Well, there's certainly some debate over why they died. Um, You know, some would say uh, it was strange fire because they went to the wrong place. They didn't go to the altar of sacrifice. Some would say it was strange fire because, um, you know, they, they did the wrong thing in terms of the use of the incense that they used. Um, Some would say it was, um, you know, strange fire because they did it at the wrong time. Well, we don't know specifically, but without a doubt, drunkenness was a factor in what they did. And the use of wine is not conditional, like it's okay to drink when you're not in the uh, church, so to speak. But when you're in the church, you better be sober. When you're in the temple where you minister, in this case, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, you better be sober. Clearly, that's not what's in view. Uh, Let me read a passage. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 29. God makes an interesting statement here in reference to the children of Israel in this time of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 
in verse uh, 5, here it is. It says, and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandal is not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink in order that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. So, you know, God made some very specific statements here. Um, and he did not want them to drink wine or to use strong drink, intoxicating liquor. And when these two men did it, they were doing something that was evil, especially in that they were involved in the worship of God himself. They were approaching into the very presence of God as God's men, as God's priests. And they did what was evil. So it's not a conditional drinking. God, God didn't want them to drink at all. He made that very clear here in Leviticus, I mean, Deuteronomy 29, 5 and 6. In fact, God admonishes his people never to use strong drink. Uh, Do not drink wine or strong drink, especially if you want to live. You know, God doesn't strike down every believer who goes out and gets a little bit buzzed. But he struck down these two men, uh, these two men who should have known better, these two men who had witnessed the miracles out of Egypt and were a part of that group on Mount Sinai, uh, when God came down, uh, they should have known better to treat God as holy. And so he dealt with them in a very, very severe way. Um, So whatever you can give as to the source of the strange fire, uh, and there are some good scholars who debate that, there's no doubt that anyone debates that the severity of their punishment was related to their drunkenness. And it might have been their drunkenness that drove them to offer the strange fire to worship God in an appropriate way. You know, when your thinking's not clear, you do stupid things and say stupid things. Uh, But without a doubt, they should not have been drunk when they came into the presence of God. God didn't want any of the children of Israel in the wilderness to use wine or strong drink. So he's very clear on that. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero. And our next caller is studying in Exodus, and she's interested in the significance of not putting yeast in the bread, unleavened bread. That is. Well, yeast has different um, meanings, um, both literal and metaphorical. But if you just take out a concordance and look up yeast and you see all of its instances, one of the things you will see is that yeast is symbolic of sin. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were not to have any yeast in the house. They were to sweep the house clean of all yeast and not to use it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? Because, (coughs) excuse me, each of the Old Testament feasts were a picture of the Messiah himself and what he would accomplish For instance, the Passover, that was a picture of the spotless, innocent Son of God. Uh, Unleavened bread was a picture of the sinless Son of God. Uh, The Feast of First Fruits, again, a picture of the sinless Son of God. Only someone who is sinless has authority over death. Death could not hold Messiah in the grave because Messiah never, ever sinned. So when you set aside for this period of time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that pursued for seven weeks and the 50th day of Unleavened Bread was Pentecost, where they celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, You were remembering what God had promised all the way back in the garden that he would send a Savior. And he had been unfolding progressively how that would take place and how we would identify him. 
And so Jesus even likens the teaching of the Pharisees to uh, leaven. Uh, That is, there's sin in their teaching. And God's not interested in sinful teaching. He's interested in the purity of the unadulterated truth of Holy Scripture that as leaders in the church, we are to present. So this was very important because um, that's a whole study in itself. And there are four feasts uh, that were fulfilled in the first coming of Messiah. The last three feasts will be fulfilled in the second coming of Messiah. But at the first coming of Messiah, it's not by accident that Jesus actually died on Passover, that he was buried on the, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that he was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And then at the end of unleavened bread on the 50th day, what we call Pentecost, we think of Pentecost purely in New Testament terms. It's the 50th day. It's a Greek term, but it's the 50th day of the uh, feast of unleavened bread. It's kind of the highlight celebration. And it's on that day, of course, that the Holy Spirit came. So four of the feasts have already been literally fulfilled. And I could spend hours on them in terms of going through the pictures of them, but I just want you to catch the highlights. But there's three that are yet to be fulfilled, and God is setting the stage in Israel today as we speak for the fulfillment of the final three. And so it's not by accident that God regathered his people, the Jewish people, physically into the land because he is setting the stage for the second coming of Messiah. Um, and he's going to fulfill the last three feasts yet. Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the Jewish people are going to see that the one they crucified was actually their Savior. They will look on him whom they pierced. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, when Messiah will literally come and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. So these feasts are types or illustrations of all that Messiah would do in both his first and second comings. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We had a question a while back about how to deal with people in a cult. Uh, To expand on this, is it possible for a person to be a born-again believer if they believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but they also believe that a present-day man is a prophet who is the one to give the true interpretation of the word? Uh, Yes, it's, it's possible to believe both of those and to uh, be saved and yet to be deceived. You know, if there's one man who says exclusively, I have the right interpretation of Scripture, you are listening to a cultist of sorts. Because, in fact, when God actually initially gave the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, give a, a picture of how that was manifested in the early church, There are really two sides to the office of prophecy and really the gift of prophecy. The office of prophecy in the Old Testament, as well as someone with the gift of prophecy or someone who served in the office of prophet in the New Testament. It was not only a gift, it was also an office. And so uh, the Bible reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 that the church is built on certain foundational gifts of apostles and prophets and and pastor, teachers, and evangelists. And so this was one of the early New Testament church offices. And in both the Old Testament prophet and the office, there was basically a twofold distinction. One was the foretelling, in other words, taking truth that God had already revealed and preaching it. And the other was foretelling, 
taking truth that um, God had not yet revealed, but giving it. And in the gift of prophecy, you saw both of those manifestations. And so, of course, before the Bible was completed, there was a time when people didn't know, well, what should we do about such and such? We don't know. And why would they not know? Because God hadn't written a book yet telling them what he had said on that particular subject. So before the canon of Scripture and the New Covenant was completed, God gave direct revelation. Uh, the, the gift of prophecy was not unique to men. Uh, preaching in the New Testament church was unique to men, but not the gift of prophecy. Uh, many people could use the gift of prophecy, including women. Uh, a, a modern parallel would be a woman today standing up in church and reading Scripture, not teaching it, but reading it. A woman had that freedom and that right. Uh, and God would sometimes bless her with that ability. And of course, if something was really from God, you were to test the spirits to see if that be true. And uh, by the uh, mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, those things were to be confirmed. And so the prophets were to evaluate the prophets. So if one guy says, I have the unique you know, ability to, to read and interpret the scriptures, then right off he's violating some passages in the 14th chapter of Corinthians where he, he talks about, you know, two or three people giving affirmation to what God has revealed. So, you know, um, he, he's way off. And can Christians be deceived? Absolutely. Um, Paul warns us of this very uh, possibility in his second letter to the Corinthians. He, he tells us, for such men are false apostles. There are some guys who are going around, they're saying, I'm an apostle like Paul. Paul said, well, actually, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And there are people today who disguise themselves as prophets of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds." So this is error. This is falsehood. Uh, You know, I suggest if you want to help your relative, maybe send them to my website. Uh, We have a spiritual gifts course. And one section in the course deals with sign gifts in the New Testament. And so I deal with the four miraculous gifts, so to speak. Uh, Tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, and miracles, but there are some principles there that apply to the uh, foretelling aspect of prophecy. And I think a lot of this would be cleared up uh, for your relative who's really getting involved in a, in a very dangerous cult. And give it enough time, this guy will speak more heresy that um, your, um, you see, but, but he's got kind of a built-in protection here. Well, if I alone can interpret the Bible and someone challenges him, well, that's not what this text is saying. Well, since I alone can interpret the Bible, you know, who are you to question me? That, that's the mark of a cult, and it goes against the whole tenor of the New Testament, where there is an understanding that is implied or directly stated. Just read First and Second Timothy and Titus where there is an understanding that other people can understand the word of God so much so that we are to use the word of God as our plumb line to evaluate those other people, that no one person has that exclusive right. So you've got some kind of pope here 
uh, and he's way off. So let's go to a live caller, though, who's waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Did we lose him? I think maybe we did. Let's. Um, Are you there, caller? Well, we lost them. Let's go to the next question. They can call back and we'll try again. We've got some more dictated questions that have come in. All right. Very good. Um, uh, we had a question, let's see, from Ron. He writes, the earth started with Adam and Eve and they had Cain and Abel. Where did other people come from? Also, after the flood, uh, when it was only Noah's family, where did all the people come from? Well, the, the former question's uh, a little more challenging than the latter. Uh, the former question... Adam and Eve, where did Cain basically get his wife is what you're asking. And I have a whole sermon on this. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can listen to my series on the book of Genesis. And um, I I preach 50 some sermons on the book of Genesis. And if you go to Genesis chapter four and click on the event of Cain and Abel and what took place, um, it says, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. So the question is, where did, where did he get his wife? Well, he married one of his sisters. Now, remember, this is a time in human history where people lived eight, 900 years. We don't know how many other children Adam and Eve have, uh, it, it's not given to us in terms of the exact number. We do read, though, for instance, in Genesis 5 and verse 4, then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived 930 years, and he died. So he had other sisters, and it, it may seem a little weird to us today. And there was a time in human history when God changed the rules, so to speak, and under the Mosaic law, God made it very clear who you could marry and who you could not. You couldn't marry your sister. Uh, today, we'd call that incest. God would call it incest. But there was a time in the early history of the world where God permitted it. But it wasn't as weird as you might think, because if you were maybe 300 years older than your sister, and there were several sisters, she might not feel like your sister in that respect. In either case, he married his sister. Or he... Um, uh, or, you know, his other brother got married to one of his sisters and married his nephew. Well, it, whatever happened, the details are not specifically laid out, but he married a close relative. And God closed that off at a point in history and wrote his law um, into our hearts where we know that's wrong today. But it was allowed initially. And this is important to understand. There's no like other creation outside of this family. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And what's the sad thing is to read the lineage of Cain and his family, and and it's not good. Whereas you read the lineage of Seth, and he raises a godly heritage. Now, your other question is a little easier. Uh, There are eight people that went on the ark. Noah, Mrs. Noah, um, his three sons, and their three wives. So when they came off the, the ark, you know, his sons and their wives had children. And you can read about it in their lineage as it's found in Genesis chapter um, uh, 10 and 11. You come to two very important passages in Genesis 10 and 11. In Genesis 10, you have the descendants of Noah. And then in 11, you have the Tower of Babel where languages are confused because of the arrogance of certain people. Post-flood, you think they would have woken up, but it just is a reminder of how fallen we are in some of the descendants 
uh, were in utter rebellion. And so God ended up confusing the languages of the world, which by the way, explain how we got the races. Because if you spoke a language uh, and you wanted to talk to someone, you'd want to talk to someone that knew your language and that's who you would marry. You didn't want to talk to someone whom you couldn't even carry on a conversation with. So people began to marry within their language group. And when you marry within a language group long enough, there are definitive traits that begin to develop. And that's why some people are black and some are white and some are Chinese and some are Filipino. And when you study the 11th chapter, unlike the evolutionists who said, well, you know, certain races of the world, like Jewish people and so forth, you know, they're just defective, as Hitler said, because he believed in the theory of evolution. And it was his theory of evolution that led him to such a disdain for certain groups of people, especially Jewish people. Although I think his anti-Semitism is more than just evolutionary in his thought. It's satanically inspired. But lay that aside, um, we have an explanation for the races that they don't. They say, well, there's just genetic defects. And some people have built a whole uh, theology of racism out of their theory of evolution, which is an evil theory. Um, They want to deny the historicity of the creation, that time started at a point in time, that this has not been going on for billions of years, but they want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they want to say no to what they know to be true in the creation and the conscience. And they want to worship the creation uh, in which they basically uh, offer as an explanation for the world we see instead of the God who made the creation. So anyway, it's a good question, but I would suggest if you really want the detailed answer, go to my series on Genesis. You can get the app. It's at at, at the app store for Apple or Android. Type in search the scriptures, Carl Brogy. There's a couple other search the scriptures. There's only one search the scriptures.org. There's a group called search the scriptures.com. I don't know if they're still up and running, but there is search the And that's the one you want to go to. Just type in my name with that. You can get the app, download it. All of my sermons there. You can listen to it as your leisure. You're driving down the highway. You're working out in the yard, cleaning the house uh, and listen to the sermon on Genesis four. There's actually two uh, messages I gave there. If I recall first in Genesis four, um, where I deal with the issue of Cain and Abel one through eight. And then, uh, I pick up a second message where I cover the rest of chapter four. And I think that would be extremely helpful to you in going through a further explanation where I tie in Leviticus and some other critical passages. All right. In First uh, John five sixteen, a listener writes, it talks about sin, not unto death. What does this mean? It's a great question. And uh, John, of course, writes four books in the New Testament He writes the Gospel of John. Most of us know that. He writes the Revelation, uh, which is the last book in the Bible. And then he writes three short books, one a little bit longer than the other two, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 5, he makes this statement. And it's an interesting statement because it's, it's a really, it's a sobering statement where God wants us to have kind of a heads up here. Let me, um... Let me just pick it up so you can kind of see the overall context. He says, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 
and we have beheld and bear witness that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know him and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And let me now go with that said into the fifth chapter And he makes this statement. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, the one we've just described, in order that you can know that you have eternal life. We don't have to wonder. We can know, assuming the things that he has written about, just described, are true of us. Then we can say, yes, I've got the real thing. And this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the request which we've asked from him. So if you know you're praying in the will of God and there's no doubt about it, you can stand God's God's going to answer that. It's done um, because there's no mystery. Uh, If God has revealed something to be uh, true and you have a clear promise, then you can ask in faith. You know he's heard and if he's heard, then he's answered. Then he makes this incredible statement. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So he's talking about a sin that can lead to death. What is that? Well, it can be any number of things. Uh, For instance, if you read Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira uh, appear before the uh, apostles and they said, you know, we sold our property. And they, of course, saw Barnabas, who had sold a piece of property, brought the full proceeds to the apostles' feet. And they were just so encouraged and the church was encouraged. So Ananias and Sapphira probably thought, well, we want to be spiritual like Barnabas. So they have a piece of land, say, worth 100,000. And they sell it for, for um, you know, uh, 50000 or for 100000 And they come and they say, you know, hey, you know, we, we just sold our, our property for fifty grand. They sold it for a hundred, but they said, we sold it for fifty. We'd like to give it to the church. God bless you. And Peter says, why have you conceived this evil deed in your heart? You've not only lied to the, to, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and in lying to the Holy Spirit, he said, you've lied to God. And of course, his wife comes in, she gives the same false story and she drops dead. That was a sin leading to death where Ananias and Sapphira are believers. Yeah, you're going to meet in, in heaven someday if you're a believer. But there was a, a sin that led to death. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They went against the dictates of their mouth and uh, against what they knew to be true. Now they could have sold the land for a hundred grand and said, Peter, you know, God led us to sell this piece of property and we only got 50 for it. I mean, we got a hundred for it, but we're only going to give 50 to the church. We want to save the rest for a rainy day. And that would have been fine. No one was commanded even to give this kind of a gift. This is not socialism. This is a, this is a free will offering that they gave. Uh, They didn't have to give any of it except an increase, which God commands called the tithe. But they lied about it. Now, listen, God doesn't strike down dead every believer who lies. If he did, there'd be a lot of us who wouldn't be in the church today. 
Christians lie sometimes. Though if someone loves lying, if that's the practice of their life, they're giving evidence they've never met the living God. If that's their way of life, that's what the revelation tells us. People who love lying have no inheritance in this coming kingdom. We call heaven, the new Jerusalem. Read the last chapter of the revelation for details. But nonetheless, you know, sometimes God does something once to show his displeasure. There are six things the Lord hates, yea, even seven. And he puts on the list there a lying tongue. God doesn't like deceit. And the spirit of truth doesn't like it either because he indwells in us and it grieves his heart. But sometimes God does something once to show forever his displeasure. And of course, um, you know, God doesn't burn every Sodomite city. But he burnt Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground. If you want to know how God feels about homosexuality, just look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, the liberals say, you know, they were burned to the ground for a lack of hospitality. Oh, come on, please. How stupid do you think we are? No, they were burned to the ground because of their heinous sin of homosexuality. And the book of Jude gives us divine commentary on that as well as Second Peter chapter 2. In either case... Uh, there are still sins that can lead to physical death. You say, how do you know? Well, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He gives the instruction to the believer for the Lord's table. And it's a very sobering instruction. He says, um, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And this is what he said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not a memorial service for some dead person. We are remembering someone who is very much alive, who is coming again. We are confessing his death, burial, resurrection, and the parousia, the, 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 the second coming, um, when he will return from heaven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so then let him eat. God wants you to eat when you come to the table. So then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now the old English of the 17th century said damnation. And that's unfortunate because it was not unfortunate in that day because the word can carry different connotations. Uh, But you see, language has changed. And so today when we hear the word damnation, we think of an eternal damnation in hell. And so a lot of pastors who maybe didn't read the original would uh, ponder this verse and they would introduce the Lord's table to their congregation and they would say, you know, if you're here today and you're not saved, I would just really warn you not to eat of the bread or drink of the cup because you can drink judgment to yourself. So don't do it. Now that was not necessarily a bad thing to say, so I'm not criticizing them. I'm not criticizing them. And there is a degree in a grain of truth in that very principle because if someone comes to the Lord's table and they really understand what the elements picture, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, because we're proclaiming a savior at this supper until he comes again, one who's very much alive. 
and we still refuse to receive Christ, then we are hardening our heart. And in that sense, we could be drinking damnation to ourselves. But the word in the original carries the idea of God's divine discipline. For he who eats and drinks in all, every new translation, New King James, King um, ESV, ISV, YLT, NET, uh, NASB, whatever, all say judgment. They drink judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you, meaning you Corinthians, are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Once saved, always saved. But if you are saved and you step out of line, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God's children are not without discipline. If you're without discipline, the scripture says you're illegitimate and not true sons. And discipline has a positive and a negative component to it in scripture. Sometimes you're under the discipline of the Lord and you've done absolutely nothing wrong. You're right in the center of God's will. Obeying him, but he's disciplining you because he's building in you. He's sharpening you. He's conforming you to the image of his son. But there's a negative aspect of discipline, you know, and you do that as a dad. You know, there are disciplines I taught my kids. I taught them how to work hard. I taught them to get out there and work until they were red in the face. And when they wanted to quit, we kept going. Uh, Why? Because I wanted them to know the value of hard work. That was a positive discipline. But then there were times when, you know, you, you, you discipline them um, corporally, not abusively. God has designed a, a certain place in the human body on the backside for a spanking to take place. You never do it with your hand. The Bible's clear. You use a separate instrument. And so the Bible speaks of the rod. You don't discipline with the same hand you love them with. So God had a plan and a procedure through all of this. In either case, you discipline them. And God does that too. So when you come to the Lord's Supper, and this is the warning, it has nothing really to do with the believer so much as it does the unbeliever. Look, millions of unsaved people celebrate the Lord's Supper every week and their losses can be, they have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what it represents. Uh, In fact, they have a lot of false views as to what it represents as I did growing up at the church I grew up in where they said it literally became the body and blood of Christ. Oh, wow. Um, You know, and nothing happens to them. The, the the warning here is to those of us who are saved. When you come to the Lord's Supper and there is unconfessed, unrepented sin in your heart and you are taking the very elements that remind you that you've been bought with a price, that you're not your own, you are to live to the glory of God and you nonetheless basically take those elements that symbolize that truth, you're, you're saying, God, take me to the woodshed. And that's what God did with some of the Corinthians. Some of them were weak, some of them were sick. And some had died. That's a sin that led to death. So uh, there are examples of divine discipline. There can come a time in a person's life where God says, enough is enough. You know, you, 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 you bring your little child to the birthday party and, and she kicks Joey in the shin. You say, honey, no, you can't do that. And you deal with her sternly. You don't want to discipline her publicly. And next thing you know, she, she pulls Sally's pigtails. You pull her aside and say, Honey, look, I'm sorry. And you take her in the back room and you, you discipline her and she comes back out and out comes the birthday cake and she takes it and she smashes it over the little guy's head. And the mom says, this is enough. We're going home. 
And that's what our father does sometimes. Sometimes he says, this is enough. I'm taking you home early. You're going to leave this world sooner than I would have wanted you to leave. It's divine discipline. It's a sin that leads to death. You don't lose your eternal life, but you lose your opportunity to continue to serve the Lord here and with it, a loss of eternal reward. Great question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have got a question on today's Bible line, and I think we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. What's your question? How can I help? Well, uh, I was hoping you might be able to speak a bit, a little bit about the Azusa Street Revival that took place back in 1906. Sure. And the reason for this is um, I had an individual approach me uh, after church service this past Sunday and say that what we need today is another Azusa Street Revival. I think they could tell by the look on my face. I didn't exactly, uh, you know, agree with what they were saying, but it just seems to me, and I'm and I'm very concerned that there's a lack of discernment amongst even the true believers today, and strange things, including this and other things, are slowly creeping into our church. Well, you're right. In fact, uh, there's a question that has come in today. Uh, Rick, maybe after this caller, we'll pull it up because it kind of addresses this uh, this very issue. Um, the Azusa Street Revival, of course, took place in Los Angeles, and it was yes. um, under a man by the name of William Seymour. And it actually had some uh, events that preceded this. There were some things that uh, took place before this, and I, I won't go into those. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts, and so I read extensively uh, of this whole event and all that took place. But basically, to just give a quick summary for those who are listening, um, at the Azusa Street Revival, there was a resurgent of what they considered to be the sign gifts, especially speaking in tongues. And, of course, um, there were some events that preceded this, but this became, in many respects, the launching pad for the whole Pentecostal movement in America. So today we have both Pentecostals and Charismatics, and there is technically a distinction between the two. There are Pentecostal denominations that came out of the Azusa Street Revival, like the Church of God, uh, Cleveland, and other uh, denominational groups like the Assemblies of God and so forth. Um, and then there's the charismatic movement, same manifestations, but they actually uh, were birthed out of mainline denominations. Um, so there's technically a difference. But with that said, they were saying that the gift of tongues that was witnessed on Pentecost was being witnessed again. And I would say, no, it was not, because what they were witnessing was not what took place on Pentecost, as you read of it in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes... The Bible is very specific how he comes and with what manifestations that he comes. Um, The Bible says in Acts 2 that there was 120 who were assembled in the upper room. And they are awaiting uh, the promise of the Spirit, which Jesus told them to await. Uh, He said, don't even go out and preach until the promise of the Father. It's promised in the Old Testament in passages like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. It's the promise of the new covenant because Messiah in this new covenant, which Jesus said at the Last Supper, I am, this is the blood of the new covenant. The word covenant means testament or promise. And so we divide our 
Bibles into basically two halves, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The promise of the New Covenant is fulfilled on Golgotha, where Messiah would shed his blood, where forgiveness of sin would be realized, and a new promise would come where the Holy Spirit who had been with believers would now now come permanently to indwell believers from the greatest to the least, uh, no respecter of persons. Everyone could share the same blessed, special relationship with the Spirit of God. And this is why John the Baptist, of course, he never did a miracle, but Jesus said there was never one born of a woman greater than him. But then he reminded us that the person who's least in the kingdom of God was greater than John. Why? Because John died prior to the fulfillment of the new covenant. And so here they are, they're waiting in the upper room and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It's a simile here, like a violent rushing wind. There is no wind, but it has the noise of a violent rushing wind. And this is God's grace. You know, it'd be like a 787 cranking its engines. Uh, If you heard some violent rushing wind, like a tornado, it would get your attention. You said, what's that noise? So people of course are here for the the peak day of the uh, the first question concerned the feast of unleavened bread and the 50th day of unleavened bread was pentecost and it's the fourth old testament feast that's finding its fulfillment and so on this 50th day when the city is packed over 2 million people would come to Jerusalem from all over Israel and sometimes other surrounding countries because they were pious Jews and they knew that this was one of the festivals that God required them to come to the city for, to the temple. And they hear this noise and they all want to see what it is. So, of course, they go to that place and God's gathering people to hear a message. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. So one, there's a noise. Secondly, there is a fire shaped like a tongue that rests on each individual. I don't know if it's above their head like a birthday candle. It's the birthday of the church or on their lap or, but it rests on each one of them. And God, among other things, is shouting, you know, the Holy Spirit is coming to do what I told you to wait for. Wait for him so you can go and preach. And he wants to communicate through you. And then it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving utterance. And the Greek word here is glossolalia. And it's the word that in Greek that is used, typically translated language. It is never, ever, ever used anywhere in the Word of God, or for that matter, even in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, what we call the Septuagint, to refer to anything but a real language. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. Now they, again, you know, we're trying in our English Bible to, to communicate, but it's a different word here. Now it's the Greek word uh, dialect. We get our word dialect. So in other words, there were not only real languages, but there were dialects within a language. For instance, there's Chinese. We refer to the, you know, billion plus people on the earth who live in that geographical region is speaking Chinese. But there's actually a whole lot of dialects like there's Mandarin Chinese. 
So they not only spoke a language they had not known before, they spoke a dialect within a language. So if I were Chinese and all of a sudden I could speak English, so I'd never learned a word of English, but not only did I speak English, I spoke Boston English or South Carolina English or New Jersey English. And they're all different and they have unique, uh, you know, words that are uh, respective of that region. And there are 15 such languages that are mentioned. That was a miracle. That was Pentecost. You can no more duplicate Pentecost, and they don't even duplicate it at Azusa Street in the fullest way. There's no noise. There's no literal tongues shaped like a fire landing on each person. All there is is some kind of utterance, but it's not this kind of utterance. It's not a real language and a real dialect within a language. In fact, what they did at Azusa Street was no different from what Greek cults were doing in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., hundreds of years ever before Pentecost. There's all kinds of uh, cults in the Greek Empire where they worship objects and pagan gods where they have tongues and they speak in tongues. But they're not speaking in tongues like they did on the day of Pentecost. Look, um, there was a reason for this. Of course, the reason here was God wanted to do a miracle. And so when thousands of people come because of the noise and they see these people who come out, they're utterly perplexed. And they were continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what, what does this mean? I mean, we know these guys. These are Galileans. How is it that they're speaking in all these different languages? And some were mocking and saying, well, they're just drunk. They're full of sweet wine. And Peter says, look, just, you're not even using proper logic. Uh, these men are not drunk. As you, it's only the third hour, a third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. Ah, this is what the prophet Joel said would take place. And it shall be in the last days that I shall pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, in I will in those days send forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. That's what they were doing. Prophecy in its truest definition is revelation from God. In the, and they were speaking literal revelation from God. They were giving praise of God's greatness. Um, and, and that was a miracle. And so when did the last days begin? Peter says here on the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. That's why the New Testament teaches the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come at any second, that nothing prophetically needs to be fulfilled for his return for his church. Now, a lot has to happen for the second coming to take place, but the rapture takes place before the second coming. And so when you see prophecy for the second coming being fulfilled as we are in our day, we know the rapture that precedes it is that much closer. So I think we're in the last of the last days. But what they saw at Azusa Street had absolutely nothing to do with what we say in Acts. And of course, the Pentecostal movement has changed its doctrine so many times. It's it's just it's mind blowing. It gets dizzying after a while. You know, first they said this had to happen for you to be saved. Uh, Then they said, well, this happens after you're saved. It's a second work of grace. It's the baptism of the spirit. Now, the baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of conversion, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 teaches. Uh, Or they said, this is a deeper sign, a deeper work of God's ministry in your life. 
And then you say, well, look, uh, glossolalia, a real language. And they say, well, this is not a real human language. This is an angelic language. Look, Paul is not speaking about an angelic language. He lists 15 real languages. Oh, they said, but if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clang. See, it's an angelic tone. That's why we don't recognize it. Paul is using hyperbole. He goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, look, who has all knowledge but one God alone? But Paul is saying, even if I had all knowledge, which I don't because only God has that, but I didn't have love, it profits me nothing. So his point in all of this is that, um, you know, tongues is very clear as to what it is and how it manifests itself. So what I would suggest to you, if you really want to study this, I taught a course on spiritual gifts and there's one section called the sign gifts. And if you call search the scriptures and ask them, I'd like to get the handout for the sign gifts. They'll be happy to send that to you. And I kind of walk you through it, but let's just say for the sake of argument, I have the gift of tongues and you have the gift of interpretation. I ought to be able to speak a tongue. And if you have the gift of interpretation, you should be able to interpret it. And really, if we recorded that, we should be able to take that same tongue and play it to you choose anybody you want, Mr. Pentecostal brother with the gift of interpretation and let them listen to it. And they ought to be able to come up with the same interpretation. It's never, ever, ever, ever happened. Why? Because what we're seeing today is not what we saw in the New Testament era. But people want to say it is because they're looking for meaning and significance. So my heart goes out to them and they think this is how it happened. Someone just emailed me this morning and said, take my name off your list. I responded to them with uh, an email. Glad you visited. Can I help you with anything? You got any questions, Amy, about take me back. You don't believe in the gifts. Well, I do believe in the gifts. I'm a charismatic Christian. I believe every Christian has a spiritual gift at least one, and you're to use it, find it. But what they meant is you don't believe in speaking in tongues. Well, not the way the New Testament describes it. Well, then you're not spiritual. Look, the real mark of spirituality is not whether I speak in tongues, but it's how I use the one tongue God has put in my head. That's what James says. So Azusa Street was a bogus movement. It was a bogus movement. I'm not saying that to be unkind, But my, if you begin to study what came out of that revival, you wouldn't want it as a part of your life, I promise you. Well, we're out of time. Where did another hour go? Still many questions we never got to, but I thank this last caller. Lord willing, we'll come back on another day and we'll talk some more. In the interim, if you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the drop-down menu, ask Dr. Brogy a question, and I'll do my best to respond to it. I hope you walk with Christ, and if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, we are doing this course on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow night, we'll be dealing with the deity of the Spirit, a very, very important issue. You ought to be able to defend from the Bible how you know the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son and a co-eternal person of the Godhead. Have a great day. 